Welcome back to the Gen Z Speaks podcast. With us today is a very interesting guest. He's a tourist. He's an author. Uh, he blogs about his daily life almost on a daily level, uh, daily scale. You've been to about how many countries, Raymond? 80? 81 countries. 81 countries. Wow. So he's been to 81 countries, been to all seven continents, I'm assuming? Yes. And I've been to North Korea. And you've been to North Korea. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, RC Hand, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thank you very much. So tell us about, you know, your, your, your life. I mean, like what motivated you or inspired you to travel and be a prolific traveler that you are now? My wife, actually, uh, her father was born in London and I come from a family that uh, worked all the time. My father was a plastering uh, contractor and uh, we ran a few restaurants for several years. And so I, I grew up working quite early and uh, my wife's family, uh, we're partially in England, partially in America. And so when I got married to her, uh, we traveled to England to meet her family. And we've been traveling ever since. That's what we worked for so hard was to have enough dough to go travel once in a while. I noticed on your website that you said that you started working when you were only eight years old. Yes. Right. Can you can you walk us through like what, what was your day to day like at eight years old? Like, how are you able to work because when I was eight years old, I, I was just watching cricket games back in my home country in Pakistan and, you know, flunking my classes. So I, I can't even imagine myself. Well, doing what you did. Yeah. Well, my father, my father worked on Disneyland when they built Disneyland in California as a plasterer. And then he went, he, he saw his job ending and he went and he uh, went to give a bid on a restaurant that was empty and he ended up leasing it. And so I was about six years old at the time, and we opened this restaurant, and the whole family worked in it. I had a shoe shine box, and uh, we swept and we loaded beer boxes, and we helped in the kitchen. I can't, I still can't wash dishes. I wash so many dishes that it makes me uh, ill just to see a pile of dirty dishes. And all of us, my sister, my younger sister, my two older brothers, we all worked in the business. Anybody who has a family business knows about that. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's awesome, man. I love like stories like that where you start, you know, family business, or you start young and then you kind of build to like your goal and your goal is obviously to travel. Right. Um, where was like the where was the destination that you were like, I have to go here? Nepal. Nepal. Why yeah. is that? Well, it's just so foreign. It had a large impact on my wife and I both. I, I see Western civilization, the way children are, way, are raised in Western civilization as uh, a little bit of a problem. Nepal uh, and other parts of the world, children are incorporated into the family, into the working on the farm. And as I worked in the family business, I learned early that giving children responsibility makes them functioning adults. Look at the first world. We have people who never had to do anything and at 30 can't do anything. So uh, the evidence is there in front of us that if you work on a farm or work in a small family business, you're going to learn skills and develop uh, the idea that you can succeed at something. If you're given everything in your entire life, how are you ever going to learn that you have to do things on your own and succeed on your own? Absolutely. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, he's a clinical psychologist. His name's Jordan Peterson. But oh, he, sure. He, yeah, he claims the same thing that you've claimed here, that, um, you know, if you don't even give your kids chores when they're younger, that they just grow up and they're not really 
um, an active member of society, right? They're just kind of a blob and you kind of have to wait and eventually you learn something, right? That's just the way humans work, right? But they're definitely not as um, like active as, as they should be. So what do you think it is? What do you think it is about Western civilization that we're, we're like this? We're spoiled. Every race of person who comes to America succeeds getting the American dream. And Americans who live here, who speak the language, are, are useless. They, they fall behind. You have people coming here from everywhere who can't speak English, who start a small business. And next generation, they're gone to UCLA. They're very successful. And on and on and on. It's, it's obvious around us at all times what's happened to Western civilization. For sure. I, I think it, I, so me and my dad talk about this actually. And it's like, there's a type of resilience, right? When you're a migrant and you're coming into the U S and now you have all this opportunity and you're able to do something with your life, right? Like you're, you're able to do, you weren't able to start a business. Like that's an awesome gift to be able to do and create like a, a source of income for yourself rather than just relying on, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and, and it just seems like there's a lot of resilience and grit in immigrants and they just want it, right? That's what it comes down to. Who wants it more? The and person that's, that's right. spoiled and that's been given life or the person that's coming to start life. And I they're just, not afraid to fail because they can't fail. They're coming, they're coming at the bottom of the rung. Their only uh, movement is up. And just to add to that, you know, I feel like my dad, who was an immigrant from India, um, he, you know, in India, you have, you have, you don't have the opportunities that you have in America, right? In America, there's so many opportunities for uh, anyone to do anything and people are not taking advantage of it versus in other countries there's no opportunities and everybody is trying to find opportunities so it's like the opposite dynamic and that's why I think a lot of people moving to America are, are, are very successful. Absolutely they understand that the opportunity is there for them to take because they live somewhere where there was no opportunity. Exactly yeah. We take I think speaking as an immigrant myself I've noticed that as now that I'm becoming more American uh, and now I'm an American citizen, I think I've started to take things for granted that when I initially moved here, I didn't, you know, like electricity where I'm from in Pakistan, electricity, you don't have electricity 24 hours a day. Maybe right. you're lucky if you get it 12 hours a day, even if you're like middle class or upper middle class, so you have to like yeah. use a generator or like a, U, a UPS thing to generate electricity, you know, roads our freeways, don't get me wrong, some of them have problems, but oh my God, have you been to the street that I grew up at? Like it's, you can't, it's, 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 it, there's like, it seems to me there's like, you know, there's countries in the world that are decades behind the United States. And I think because we, that's because we're born into it, we're born into like a very developed place. We don't truly understand what it's like not to have it. This you know is I mean? why everyone should travel. I've been to the five stands, by the way. I've been to Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and, and so wow. on. I haven't been to Pakistan. Uh, I've been to India twice. India is our favorite country. I just talked to my tuk-tuk driver today. Uh, he and I correspond uh, monthly. I, I was there, I think, two years ago. And uh, I have several children on my refrigerator. I have uh, eight children that my wife and I send to, uh, to school all over the world. I have two children in India and a wow. couple in Central America. And the, the thing that's so important, of course, is to be aware of, of your opportunities, to be educated so that you can take advantage of those opportunities. And Americans um, uh, have no idea of what it is to live a different way unless they've traveled. That's why travel is so important. To, to go to Uzbekistan, 
you go to Uzbekistan, there's no trash on the ground because they're not buying uh, packaged products in the stores. They're making their bread. They're making everything they eat, they make from uh, scratch. So there's not a lot of litter. Uh, and the people have a little bit of uh, respect for the land around them. The women are out there at six in the morning sweeping up whatever little bit of trash there is. Uh, and that's a, a nice thing to see that people still have that closeness to their surroundings and their neighbors and to the earth. Uh, they don't produce as much garbage as this first world, obviously. Mm. What's been, you know, what has been the most rewarding part of traveling? Oh, meeting people, making friends. I, I correspond with people that I met years ago, uh, learning all these different viewpoints. I have my, I have books written. I have a, an, I have a, a, a Asian folktale that I wrote. I have a book that takes place in Costa Rica. Uh, I have a book that takes place in Italy. All of those things that I saw are floating in my brain. And when I sit down to write, those bits of that travel comes in and helps to delineate where this story is going to take place. And then off I go. I write cold. I don't do outlines. I sit down with a pencil and, and I write a sentence and go from there. That's awesome. I would agree. I think like I haven't traveled out of the country a whole lot. I've been to, I believe, five countries, six countries now. Um, I mean, two of them being England and Scotland. And so I don't, I don't necessarily think it's that different. I think the, the big ones, me and Jenish, actually, we backpacked um, Thailand and Vietnam. And that was an experience. I will tell you, like, to see what they're going through, like, there were little kids coming up, like, three years old coming up to us. And, like, their parents were sending them off to us, like, to sell us stuff, to say, hey, you know, trying to speak broken English. Like, we're poor, we're poor, bye, 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 you know, and they see us you know, we were broke college students, right. But we took the opportunity, like we were able to do and we did it. Um, and you know, we gave them money, but it's just insane to see that type of even pressure from your parent. It's it just, it's a different world. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, but look at the lesson they're learning to yeah, work hard to keep going for yes. sure. Yes. Um, absolutely. And I think like that viewpoint, when I came back from Thailand, I d definitely changed, right. You definitely appreciate what you have here more. Um, I called my dad when we were there, actually. I was like, wow, dad, like, um, it's insane that I even have the opportunity to nonetheless go out of country, but go across the world and experience a completely different culture. Like, I felt so grateful for that. And then coming back to, you know, my middle class family in college, like extremely proud that I'm able to be able to do this. You know, um, I think the other aspect of traveling is to see how beautiful the earth really is. You know, a lot of people get stuck in their societies and in their little circle and they don't go out. They don't see what, what the world's really about. Right. But, you they know, God's made it, a beautiful place. They parrot what people tell them. They don't understand how large the world really is. And they uh, they haven't had the opportunity, perhaps, or taken the time to go out and really see it for themselves because you have to see it for yourself. Uh, going to India is a mind altering uh, experience. If you come from uh, America. And it's a, it's a great experience. People either love India or they hate India. There's no, oh, well, maybe I like it a little bit. It's either you love it or you hate it. And it's just a hectic, busy, crazy place. And that's why it's so interesting. And Nepal is uh, similar on a smaller scale. But there are, my wife and I watch a lot of foreign films also. So we've seen the stories. We see how their stories are formulated. They, they have a different beginning point for movies uh, where we might have a 
a uh, high-speed automobile chase in an American movie, a country in Africa that makes movies it wouldn't necessarily start with a high-speed chase. It might be an animal attacking another animal. It, it depends on your environment as to what your movies talk about. And again, how many people are there in other countries? India is a perfect example with Bollywood, with these people who are equally as famous in India as any of our actors in America, but no one in America knows who they are and could care less. And they think that the Academy Awards is everything when it's just an award given in America. It's, it's silly. Yeah, no, there's definitely different cultural, you know, just differences in general. And people kind of have a hard time understanding those. By the way, in India, I'm from Gujarat. Have you been uh -huh. to Gujarat? Oh, you know, I've been to, uh, I've been to Delhi. I've been to the Stepwell. I've been out to, the, to see the Tigers. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been to the Taj Mahal. Okay. Uh, I've been all over, but it, to tell you where I've been is hard off the top of my hat. Oh, no, no worries. We're going back also. It's such a big place. You have to go five or six times to really touch and see what it's really about. No, de yeah, definitely. I agree. No, I, actually, I have, you know, even though I'm Indian and I've, I've, I was born in India, I moved here at a young age, I still haven't seen the Taj Mahal. So, you know, oh. I'm, I'm expecting to do that soon too, hopefully when I go back. So, well, my background is in construction. I was a plasterer and a builder. My father and I built small apartment buildings. So I appreciate architecture and those buildings that are so dynamic and interesting and different and huge and beautiful, mm -hmm. uh, where maybe other people don't appreciate that. I understand what it takes to build something like that. It's not a task to be started lightly. Definitely, yeah. Um, How was the architecture in North Korea? Interesting. So uh, if you've ever been to Long Beach, yeah. And you see the apartment buildings that are maybe four and five stories tall. Okay. That's basically what people in North Korea live in, in Pyongyang, which is the show city where most tourists are allowed to go. I'm sure there are villages out that are smaller. What I could see mostly looked like collective apartment living. Uh, I must say we lived in it. We uh, went to a hotel in a city that we went to and it looked like someone had been to Las Vegas and came back with the idea to build a hotel that looked just like a Las Vegas casino. And that's what it was. It looked like a Las Vegas casino. And the carpeting was laid on the floor. It was about two inches bigger than the room. It wasn't tacked down. It was just tossed in there. The bathroom was a modular fiberglass molded piece uh, with round corners. And uh, it, it was it was very it looked like a, the whole room looked like a fiberglass bathtub. It was all molded in one piece and brought in and, and set in place and the walls were put up around it. So Did it very feel like a big show that they're just trying to show you something, which is that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's what uh, Havana is the same way. When you go to Havana, there's certain streets that the tourists go on where the buildings have been painted. You go off the street or look to the right or left, you'll see buildings that are that have been painted in 100 years. And Pyongyang is the same way. And at, in Pyongyang, when we arrived from the airport, the lights went out at sundown uh, in half the city because they don't have enough oil to run the generators all the time. And as the lights went off, immediately half the city had candle lights in every window of every apartment building and they were lit almost simultaneously. And you're looking like at a sky full of stars on one half of the city and the other half of the city is lit. It's it's incredible. Wow, that it's is incredible. incredible. Yeah. How did the people look at you since you I mean, they, they can tell you're Westerner, right? Uh, how, sure. Were they looking at you a certain way or was it a trip? Well, I, I have to tell you a funny story. 
because I was in construction, I noticed everything about buildings. When I was in China, my son was 15. He came with us and he had a size 13 shoe. So all of the Chinese tourists were taking pictures of my son's feet because he had big feet, but he was only five foot eight inches tall. But that to them was really interesting. So uh, these are the things that you notice when you travel. When we were in, uh, you know, we obviously we have Western clothing. When we were in, uh, in India, the first time we were riding rickshaws through the districts where they do uh, steel uh, trunks, you know, the, how the city is divided up in those little sections where the different uh, types of uh, craftsmanship are, are being done, the crafts are being done. We would drive down the road and people would come out of their shops and wave their hands at us and yell at us, we love America, we love America. And that's interesting and wonderful to see because if you listen to American media, everyone hates us. If you believe what the media tells us, uh, we're, we're vile and hated creatures. And in reality, we've done a great deal to help our brethren around the world. And, and uh, sometimes it works to our detriment. Interesting. What how, propaganda? What, I want to go back. I want to quickly go back to uh, North Korea. How did that happen? Because I, I don't. Did or can anyone? Yeah, how does that process US, go about? Yeah, like uh, it's you... open to the. It's open to most anybody. There are no restrictions against traveling to North Korea in the United States that I'm aware of. You uh, do or you can look at the uh, United States diplomatic uh, information on travel advisories. Uh, we're going to Iran in, in uh, 23, and I've been communicating on LinkedIn with the man who lives there who's been warning me not to come because there are Americans in prison in Iran right now, but there are several organized groups that travel there. My wife wanted to uh, see North Korea. We wanted to see the communist countries before they all collapsed. So we made an effort to go to Cuba, to Russia, to North Korea, and uh, as many communist countries as we could find. And we went to the Eastern Europe, to uh, Czechoslovakia, and those countries that were former communist bloc countries to see. And we went to uh, Germany uh, when there was still East Germany. We also went to Germany after the wall came down to see the difference. So it's important to see what communism does for people, because of course in America, this is an unknown and everyone uh, that are under 30 think communism is the uh, golden fleece and the answer to all problems. And of course it is until the wealthy people are all killed and there's no money left like what happened in China during the cultural revolution. But no one remembers the cultural revolution. It happened too long ago for anyone under 30 to remember it. Yeah, Socialism is definitely, it's definitely coming about and um, it's it's underestimated, right? Jordan, I'm a big Jordan Peterson fan, and he always he talks about it all the time. How socialism is nothing to play around about, like it's it's not a joke. And um, there's a lot of detriment that's happened in this world, and people fail to to realize history's real, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Think about the people who lived in the Soviet Union for the last sixty years and kept waiting for the promises of socialism in line for bread. Uh, I read. Very sad. Malcolm, are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell? No, I'm not. He's got, he wrote the tipping point outliers, what the dog knows. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I am aware. David yeah. and Goliath read For those sure. excellent books. And also um, geography is a very important thing about the success and failures of a country. Most uh, successful countries have a thriving city within five or six miles inland from the ocean on a major river. 
Africa has none of that. Africa has two major seaports, one in the, in the south of Cape and one at the north in, uh, well, it used to be Alexandria, but now it's uh, Cairo. And it is a, Africa is a, a large bluff. There are no mountains that, can, that uh, gather snow to feed rivers that run year round. The rivers run too steep and are too rough for not to be navigated. So the country is, is harnessed, is, is hampered by its geography. Everything that moves in the country has to be moved by truck, which is expensive. They only have rain during the monsoon season. They don't have uh, different temperate zones for year round uh, weather for growing crops. They have probably the worst set of geographic circumstances for their uh, population to survive. And yet if you ask anyone, they'll say the West is responsible for the failure of Africa. It's really geography. Just look, do a little studying, look at different countries, why they're successful and look at their geography. I want to go back to you traveling to North Korea. Like how, now that you've told me that it's accessible to most Americans, I still don't think I would travel. And I know you, your wife and yourself were curious about different communist countries, but, but like, how did you overcome your fear of kind of, because I'm sure you were hesitant in the first place to, to go to a country like that. What's the worst thing that can happen? You can you end can up be, in prison. You can or, be. Well, that's political. not the worst thing. You could be dead. Yeah. You could be killed. Right. If you're killed, nothing matters after that. And so if wow. you go to prison, when you get out, you can write a story about it. Uh, I like fish. I like rice. I eat anything. My wife's a little more particular. I'm overweight. I was overweight before. You go to prison, you lose some weight, and maybe you learn a language. Maybe you go to North Korea, you learn to speak Korean, and you lose 30 pounds if you survive. And you have a heck of a story to tell once you get out of there, if you ever do. I will say this. You follow the rules, you will be okay. We had guides on the buses who watch us. It was interesting because they're reading your dossier the whole time you're on the bus. You're not allowed to take photographs of any military installations while you're on the bus. We worked around that a little bit. My wife's very clever. Um, and uh, so my on our trip, there were 13 people. One was a maybe 15 people. One was a, a Los Angeles Times uh, female correspondent. There were several historians that you would, if you looked in the book of who's who, you would probably know that as very successful historians and writers. There was my wife who worked in a supermarket and myself who was a plasterer. And they wondered just what the heck are these two people coming to North Korea for? Well, we want to learn something. We went to the Pueblo. Remember the Pueblo? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so you, the, made, you made a conscious decision that, you know, God forbid, if my wife and I end up in prison, it's fine. Like the worst that can happen is how else can you go? You can't go there worrying and then be aware of what's around True. you. You have to go True. there. And I have True. to tell you, we went to a bookstore and I looked at the bookstore and I could see in the wall that they'd remodeled the wall. There'd been an arch in that wall to another room. And I could see that they'd closed it off and put a doorway instead. And I said to the guide, I said, oh, I said, uh, this room has been remodeled. They put a partition up in this room that wasn't here uh, originally. And he said this to the woman behind the counter in Korean. And she said, has he been here before? No, but I'm an <laughs> observant person. Right. And I have to tell you, we bought some interesting books there. One was called My Escape from South Korea, mm -hmm. which is Russian propaganda. And it's really interesting. Uh, it talks about 
how in, in North Korea, there's free education and everyone can go to college. Mm -hmm. And in South Korea, everybody has to work and you have to pay your own way through college. What does that sound like? Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds <laughs> kind of like America to me. Interesting. Uh, Yes, I I, my, I was in England twice last month for a wedding and a and a uh, 90th birthday party. My wife has a lot of family there, and everyone tells me they have free health insurance. No, you do not. You pay for it out of your income taxes. It's not free. It's prepaid. So there's no such thing as free medical care. They take it out of your pay. And in Sweden, Sweden is a democratic uh, republic. It has a capitalistic system. It has a socialized medical system. Sweden has a population of 5 million people. That's like LA. That's easy to take care of 5 million people. Taking right. care of 300 million people is a little harder. For sure. So, okay, I, I have a rebuttal to that though. So, so how do you think our tax system works? Like, do you like it or what do you think? Well, um, first of all, a lot of people from Canada come to the United States to have medical procedures because there's so many people waiting in line you can't get taken care of. Likewise in England, they don't have enough of facilities because there's not enough money. Every time I fly back from England, there are English doctors coming to America looking for jobs because they don't get paid very much. As far as our tax structure, I'm not an expert on that, but let me say this. Our companies have left America to work overseas and have taken those jobs away because our government overtaxed their income. I don't care if you tax any company, anything their employees will pay income tax because they're getting paid a wage. That generates money for the federal government. If you, if you ask someone in the government how much someone should pay, they don't know. It's just always never enough. So they make us into tax cheats. The, those, those laws are passed by our politicians. If we abide by those laws, that's what we're doing. And we struggle with those, those laws. But those laws were created for special interest groups. You hear people talk about special interest groups. All those laws are created for special interest groups. I would like to see the corporate income tax brought down lower to bring back American companies back to America to employ Americans. And right now in England, I believe it's Google has closed all their offices in England and moved everything to Ireland because the taxes are lower. The Beatles left England because the taxes were high. You get to a point where you raise the taxes, the wealthy people leave and take their money with them, and you're left with a poor country. Somewhere is a balance. Interesting. Yeah, I'm under a similar impression. Look, I think, so I have no problem. I'm not anti-tax by any means, right? Because if you don't have taxes, you don't have society, right? But are the whole thing with the United States, at least, I mean, every country's like this, there's corruption everywhere, right? But it's like, how, where do we allocate our taxes that that's not exactly told to us you know what i mean like sure. italy for example greece um sweden as well they tell you like by dollar amount like this amount of dollars going here and, and here they just tell us like hey we have gas taxes and you know because of these gas taxes it's going to help our infrastructure okay so what happens about our state tax as well that's infrastructure that's also roads um and so it's like everybody puts in this money but in reality not much gets done you're in orange county right Absolutely. Okay. So you know this on the five freeway here. I mean, the five freeway is absolutely Can you see out my window. Yep. Uh, no, not quite. Well, I live oh, in a harbor. Cool. I live in a boat harbor. Oh, okay. Nice. Where about? In uh, North Huntington Beach. Right before oh, you sweet. go into Long Beach. Oh, awesome. Okay. My mom lives in Huntington Beach. Um, I, do you know where Bellaterra is? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She lives right there. Um, 
So yeah, so like you, you've seen the five freeway, right? Like it, how long has it been under construction? Like 10, 12 years now? Like at least I'm 21, right? So that's how I remember it. I would say but, about 40 years. For, right. So, but the 105 freeway, when the 105 freeway was built, how quick was that built? That was, that was relatively quick, right? That was about 12 years of actual construction. Um, aside from, you know, buying the houses and all of that, uh, you know, government encroachment, uh, it, it's just the whole thing. It's just more greed and more greed gets to us. And that, that it's just becoming a cycle, I believe. Let me say something. I was always self-employed. I, I don't have to work anymore. I, I have sent out 16,000 emails on LinkedIn in the last, it's my job. I spend three or four hours a day on LinkedIn. I and my wife discussed how we wanted to live before we were married. And we had a plan on what we would have to do to live that way. No one formulates a plan anymore. This is what we're talking about, about adult people. Adolescents don't have plans, adults do. So my wife and I decided since she had a retirement plan from the retail clerks union, she was set in her retirement plan. I was self-employed, had no retirement plan. So we worked and struggled and worked and struggled and bought real estate. We have a few little pieces of property that give us some income. A lot of my clients were that same kind of, had that same kind of mindset and bought real estate. So when they retired, they would have an income. The government will do nothing for you. You will pay more for their services and their services will be crappy. You have to take care of yourself. Don't ever forget that. Self-serving, right? You have to take care of yourself. And it's a good thing because once you become um, middle class, uh, even we could say comfortable, then you have the ability to help other people. If you're poor, you can't help anyone else. If you become successful, then you can help other people. This is what drives me crazy about people who hate wealthy people. First of all, the number of people that inherit wealth is less than 2%. It's next to nothing. No one ever talks about that. Most people who are wealthy earned it through working in small businesses. And when you become relatively comfortable, that's when you have the opportunity to help people who have less. Along with creating jobs for people, the whole your whole working career. I had one or two people work for me for 48, 40 years. Those, but not the same two people. I had about 35 different employees over 38 years, but they all learned to trade. They all made money working for me, were able to take care of their families. And they had a choice then after working with me for a few years to open up their own business. You can open up the business I had for $500. It doesn't require a great investment. It requires a determination to go to work six days a week and answer the phone all night long when you're at home and not ever see a television program all the way through and not eat a meal without your phone ringing. Every time that phone rang, it was $150 for me. You can bet I answered that phone. Yeah, I think the idea of helping yourself before helping others is definitely a reality. Um, I kind of want to uh, go back to a point you were talking about a, a while ago, but I found it really interesting. You said that the media, the, the media in the United States, is portraying United States to be some sort of a bad uh, or bad country. You know, it's just not this is not a good country, and I, I find that absolutely ridiculous because I feel like America is one of the only countries in the world where everyone's kind of learning to live together, no matter the race or whatever, right? No matter You're race, absolutely age, right, right, and like the, the example I always think about, right, is no let's say you're a white American male, right? And you go to Japan 
you you can go live in Japan for 40 years. You can get citizenship. You can be uh, you can have a business there. You still won't be treated as a Japanese person. You're absolutely right. But in America, if you come here, I've been in America for about 12 or 14 years now. And I would I would be considered American by everyone because that's how America is. This is this is the great and wonderful thing about our country. It's very rare in the world. Of course, other countries in the world have have immigrants, but they're but they're uh, usually there as uh, escaping from another country. America has immigrants who come voluntarily to make a life for themselves. And that that's the difference. And the other issue is that I have no I have no axe to grind with people coming to America because all they do is bring in different ideas from their cultures and they have a thirst for knowledge and they have a thirst for success. And all that does is drive the country's economy and improves the country. I mean, it's it, obvious. It, right. Immigrants help a lot. I, but I think, to be fair, though, it took us quite a quite a long time to get to a point that we are now and we still have ways to improve you know like we weren't this welcoming always to immigrants or i, I even, agree with you, know, you it's like it took us about 200 plus years to get to where we are now and well we're but, still, but you have to put that in the context with the rest of the world the rest of the world wasn't any better so this is how this is how humans lived humans were not uh very uh, educated in the sense of uh helping their brother uh, even though the Bible existed, uh, most people don't follow the tenets of the Bible. And as we become more uh, wealthy and more secure, then we're able to allow other people to come and join us. It, it's the first people who are picked on when the economy turns are the immigrants because they've taken American jobs. That's the first thing you're going to hear as this new, as the economy gets more and more difficult. And part of that's true. But at the same time, they bring so much to the country. And uh, I'll leave it at that. I, I'm, I welcome it. Yeah, Ibrahim, I feel like that's a common misconception. Um, I feel like since we live in an an age of information and things flow so much, that it's a lot easier for things to change now. Before you had everybody, I mean, including yourself, I'm sure, if if you were to be here in the 50s, you would be a thought of society, right? And how society is right now, we're very thought-provoking and we're very open and free to new ideas. But the vast, vast majority of people back then, they weren't okay with it, you know what I mean? So it's not like, it's not like it was everybody's fault. It's just that doesn't how make the it right. Was. Still. No, I mean, but it's just but how I have the world to tell was. you, I was here in the 50s and I grew up in a Mexican community because my parents had a Mexican restaurant. When I go into Carl's, people speak to me in Spanish first because they think I'm a Mexican. I have a I have a real warm spot in my heart for Mexicans. They're the hardest working people on the planet, almost as hard as working as Indians and Pakistanis. But you and, and sometimes you can't tell them apart. How many times have you guys been uh, talked to in Spanish? And, uh, and I, I, I look at it. I look at it as a badge of honor. So I was very lucky to grow up in a I was the outcast in my neighborhood. I was there was three white people. I mean, Hispanics are Caucasian also. But I was my father, my mother, myself and our siblings were the only white people in the whole Mexican neighborhood. And I spoke Spanish, I learned Spanish, my father speaks, spoke Spanish, and all my workers were, were Mexican because they are very hardworking people. You can't find a guy, my son wouldn't want to work with me full time. I can't find guys who are, look like me, white guys who wanted to work as hard as I worked. I'm the last of the Mohicans, so to speak. Uh, but I was so lucky to grow up in an environment where my dad and my mom dealt with 
non-lookalike people. We had, we had Ike and Turner perform, Ike and Tina Turner perform at our restaurant when they first started out. So we had black people coming. We had Japanese farmers around us. So we had Japanese people coming to eat and drink and get drunk in our bar. And uh, we had Mexicans and we had a few brave, very, it's like me going to North Korea. We had some white people coming to our restaurant. That was, they were very brave souls because the police didn't come to our restaurant and bar very often because it was on the edge of the outskirts of town and it was pretty rough. Yeah. The, How did, no, how did the oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say the the only point I was really just trying to make for that whole argument was that you know people say America is racist, America is this, but if you really look at the world, and this is from my perspective, I might be wrong. You can challenge me on this, but from like my experience in Asia and stuff, it is way worse in Asia and other countries than it is in America. America Absolutely. is actually way more inclusive and way more acceptive of different races and ethnicities and different points of views than other countries. That's absolutely. And it's not perfect, but we do a darn better job than other countries. You're absolutely right. That, that's what it is. You have to compare, right? Because if you don't compare, then you just get stuck in a bubble. And when you're stuck in the bubble, you don't see anything else that's going on. That's right. Uh, so in the 50s, and you're, you grew up, so I'm, I'm half Mexican. Um, how did the Mexicans like look at you since you were the only one there? They treated me great. They called me Wedo. White boy, <laughs> white boy, yeah, yeah, blondie, and I would go to their, I would go to three or four houses every morning for breakfast, and they'd feed me like one of their kids, and beautiful. I, I had a, I, I, I have to tell you, they're this the most gracious, warm people, and I, I can't say enough about them. And I, it was so wonderful because I worked in Santa Ana and most of Orange County, and and I worked in apartments for mostly poor people, and I would speak Spanish to these people, and they couldn't believe it. And a lot of them were, were shy and, and didn't want to speak English to me because it wasn't perfect. Well, my Spanish isn't perfect, but I can't be embarrassed. So I'm going to learn something from you. I'm going to learn a new word. And uh, I'm going to try to speak your language because that's a sign of respect. And uh, I, I live my life that way. I worked my business that way. I became very successful because I treated people like my friends. I considered all my customers my friends. Kind of getting back to traveling. I wanted to ask you, what's the what's been your worst experience traveling or the worst part of traveling? Well, I don't like to fly and I don't drink. So that could be a little bit of a problem. Uh, but I do it because I know the reward uh, and the chances of getting killed is slim and the rewards are going to be great. Uh, we had an airline strike in Australia and it changed our trip to some degree. It made it more difficult. We saw everything we we're going to see. I've never been robbed. I've, I've had people come off the street and help me when I looked like I was lost. Uh, I've never had a negative experience that I can remember. I think um, I have friends who've had negative experiences traveling. And uh, I think that if you put out a vibe, a certain vibe, uh, you get what you put out. And so I may be full of baloney, but I, you guys probably experience the same thing. If you go through the world with a chip on your shoulder, you're going to people trying to knock it off. If you go Absolutely. through the world trying to learn something from somebody, you're going to have, a, uh, I think, a good experience. You know, there's always going to be bad people in the world. There's always going to be people that, you know, whatever it is. We had one experience in Thailand, and I'm more, I'm not like a passive person. If, if it's something being disrespected, I go ahead and, you know, voice my opinion on it. And we're there, and we actually rented... Um, so do you remember that, Jenish, in, in Krabi? Yeah. We rented yeah. some mopeds. Um, and we rented some mopeds. And the guy, like, you, you know how Thailand weather is. It's just, it's on and off. It's sunny. And then immediately it just starts pouring rain. And, you know, we're tourists. We don't know. 
And so we rented about, uh, we rented two mopeds and we're going up to um, the temple and like we were going and all of a sudden it just started pouring. And so we literally turned back. It was like five minutes in. And I told the guy, honestly, like it wasn't about the money. So it was what seven bucks for a day. Like it, it's not about that. Like we're actually gonna go the next day anyway, but I, I ended up going back and we're like, Hey, is it cool? You know, we'll come back tomorrow. Can you um, just refund us for it? And we'll come back tomorrow. And he just started being extremely disrespectful to me. And like, the general consensus with Thailand is that the people are genuine. They're, they're lovely, but there are people like that, right. That, that they just, you know, maybe he was having a bad day and maybe I, you know, maybe I should have just given up the seven bucks and it wasn't worth the argument, but you know, it is what it is. Um, that's been my only, I think, negative experience. I, I worked in, uh, I worked for, uh, 38 years. I worked in probably 200,000 apartments over and over again. And I had a couple of experiences where people were uh, threatened to me or were rude to me. And uh, one of them, I, while after he left and asked me to move my truck in not a very polite way, I thought about getting revenge on him some way. I was probably 25 or 28 years old. And I thought, well, you know, I'll put some plaster in his gas tank. He's a big jerk, you know, whatever. And then it dawned on me and he came back. Well, it didn't dawn on me. He came back uh, an hour or so later and apologized. And he had a story about what had happened to him. And his daughter was sick. They had gone out in the middle of the night to the hospital. Someone had, had blocked them on the road. They were driving fast and someone wouldn't let them pass. And so he had all this stuff going on. His daughter's in the hospital and he's under this duress. And then I took and parked in his parking space and it upset him. And so he took out his frustrations on me. The lesson to be learned is that when people do this to you, there's usually a good reason or a reason, may not be a good reason, but there may be a longstanding reason, maybe, and I'm, and I'm the first one not to give people a pass when they hurt other people. But if someone is rude to you and they're not physically violent to you, it's possible that they're just having, like you said, a bad moment and, and they could be wonderful tomorrow. However, comma, it's you with them now. And that's your experience with them. And it sticks in your cross sometimes. I get that completely. I take things very personally. I'm sure you guys do too. We all do. Yeah. Everything happens. So, okay. So we're 21. Um, RC, where do you think is the most beneficial place for us to, to visit right now as a 21 year old? I would say Nepal. I think that they have the, the, any agrarian society, you could go to South America, you go to Mexico, but I think living in an agrarian society where children are able to work with the family in the fields and, and be really helpful and learn that trade, it's a very important trade. Here's, here's a dirty little secret. How many people go to college and how many people work blue collar in America? The mantra is go to college, go to college, go to college. Well, who's gonna fix your toilet? Who's gonna paint your house? So we hear this college stuff all the time. I went to college. I have a two-year degree in the administration of criminal justice. I was going to go to law school. I never wanted to wear a tie that bad to be a lawyer. And I made a really good living. I made around $100,000 a year for 25 years. Um, you know, and, I, and I own a few pieces of property. I live a very nice life. I didn't go to college. And I, didn't, I couldn't get fired. I worked six days a week for 38 years. No one could give me a pink slip and tell me you're done. Get out of here. Pack your gear. No one told me that. I got up every morning and I took care of business. And every time that phone rang, I knew it was 150 bucks. and I'm going to go get that money. 
I'm going to treat somebody nice. I'm going to meet somebody. I'm going to learn something from them. I used to tell people the, the reason for that hole in your wall is for me to get in and talk to you. Cause that's who I am. I'm a listening and talking guy. So, and I got to go into all these people's homes to do some little stinking repair to make my living but I got to listen to their life story and learn something from them. I learned something from everybody I ever meet. And I think if you go through life that way, you can't help but have a positive experience. That's so admirable. Yeah. I mean, we have so much to learn from everyone. Like even people where we least expect it from knowledge just comes in. Oh, if you're looking for it. Absolutely. And there's so much knowledge out there. You'll never gain all of it in your whole in 10 lifetimes. Mm, mm. It's, it's incredible. I, I, I read a, a couple of books all the time. And I'm, you know, I've written nine novels and I, I'm, uh, I can't even scratch the surface of what the heck's going on. So right now I have this book up. I'm looking at it while I was waiting for you. It's uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Do you know what happened to Edgar Allan Poe, how he died? It was a very tragic death, right? Well, I mean, it was. It, and it's very interesting in this time that we live in now. In his time, they used to hire people to vote. And they would pay people to change clothes, they go in a saloon, they get alcohol, they get a change of clothes and they go out and vote. And then they do it all over again because the elections were all fixed. Edgar Allan Poe was found dead in someone else's clothing. He had no money, he wasn't financially successful. Some people believed that he was voting illegally to gain money to live on. Interesting. And when he was found, he was found in someone else's clothing. So. I his work lives on. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and indeed it does. Mine may not, but his does. But uh, I mean, this, you never know. You never, you never know. know. It, it I, lives I, on here. I do want to ask you, you know, you said you worked six days a week for 38 years, right? Yes. yes. How'd you do that? Like to me as a 21 year old, that's like, whoa, that's to me sounds like you put in a lot of work and dedication. So like walk me through your day to day. Like, how did you just take it? one day at a time, you know, because 38 years, six days a week is a long, long time. It's your responsibility to take care of your family. And I had a certain level that I wanted to take care of my family. And I had customers who depended on me to be there and do a job. And I worked in the rental industry. So when an apartment goes vacant, it turns over in three days. And I'm the first person that has to be there before the painter can come in and paint before the carpet can be put in. And if I promise someone that I'm going to be there, if I don't get there, they lose money and they can't turn that apartment. And my wife and I talked about how we wanted to live after we were retired. And it was very difficult for third. I didn't work because I wanted to. I worked because I had to. I had six mortgages most of my working life because I had rental properties. And so I had to do $12,000 a month just to cover my mortgages if they were vacant. So some months I'd make $20,000 in a month. Some months I wouldn't make nearly that much. I never knew from one day to the other how much money I would make. So we had to live very close to the vest and not spend money we didn't have. Uh, we spent money to travel. I traveled throughout my working career. That was important to us. Uh, how old, you know, look at me. I'm, I'm a pretty good specimen. I play tennis every day. I played handball this morning. I played three sets of tennis this afternoon. I play handball tomorrow morning at sunup. I'm 70 years old. And uh, I'm very physically fit because of the work that I did. That's one of the ways I looked at my job was a way of staying fit. 
And I got a satisfaction, an artistic satisfaction out of my craft. I got a social satisfaction out of meeting people. You can make life and work terrible, or you can make it wonderful. That's your choice. If you, you tell yourself you love your work, and eventually you will. Mm. If you tell yourself you hate your work, you will. And don't ever go to work for money. Go to work for the pleasure of the job. The money will follow. That's brilliant. I, I, yeah. So you said something that you said you did it because you had a responsibility, right? And I feel like in our generation, there's like a lack of responsibility. Like the millennial, well, sorry, we're Gen Z, but in the millennial generation, there's nobody's buying houses, nobody's starting families because they don't want that responsibility. They don't want that feeling of being tied down, right? But that's life. Like that's reality. Um, buying a home, having something that's yours. Like in my opinion, that's something to be proud of, right? To Absolutely. have a family, like that's yours. Like you're on this earth and you know, that, that's something to be really, to really be proud of. This is what's happening around the world in Italy and France and Japan. There's, you know, the whole world is suffering a lack of births. We're running out of people. Uh, people aren't getting married in Italy and France in America. You know, in America, there's more uh, births out of wedlock than in wedlock. And nothing destroys a, the American dream faster than someone not getting married and being responsible for a family. The easiest and most surefire way to remain in poverty is to be a female and get pregnant without a husband. And people are doing it left and right. It's a big, that's a big hole to dig out of. Yeah, it's becoming like an epidemic, right? It's just, it, you know, it, we call it hookup culture. That's what we call it right now. And so it's like there's no value really in, in starting a family or like being, you know, um, disciplined, I guess, in your way too. People just want to have fun. They want to have fun. They want to go out. And that, that's just it. Fun it's is great. Fun is great until you're 70 and have no place to live and can't eat. <laughs> Try that on for size. True. Hmm. We're all going to be older one day. That's right. If you're lucky. Realize that. Yeah, if, if, lucky. Exactly, if we're lucky. Yeah. yeah. But how I do have, we prep? You have to I work have, hard. I have friends my age who will have to leave California because they don't have enough money to live on when they retire. And that's, that's, just, that's just the way that it is. And I worked for those 38 years. I paid off all my properties. I don't have any debt. I don't use, I don't use credit cards. If I do, I pay them off that month. We don't carry a balance. I pay cash for my cars. Uh, but I'm, I'm fortunate, but luck comes from planning. You don't become lucky by going out every day without a plan. You become lucky because you work your plan. My plan was to go to work every day. I had to make $600 a day. That was my plan. I did three jobs in the morning, had lunch, always took my lunch to work. When you buy lunch, that adds up to a car payment every month. Don't, don't buy lunch. Take your lunch with you. Um, and so I would do six jobs a day. My average job took 55 minutes completed. And I know these things because I had a plan and I would do $600 a day or more to make my plan work. And after I did my 600, then I'm on speed control. My wife is happy. I'm happy. And then good things roll after that. If the day is only, if it's three o'clock, you got three more hours to work in the summertime. You work until the sun goes down. That's seven 30 or eight. I grew up working with my dad at eight o'clock at night outside when the sun was up. It's all about how you train yourself and how you train your children. We've trained our children not to do very much and to expect everything to be given to them. Is it a surprise that that's who they become? No, that's no surprise. It's, 
it's a foregone conclusion. And, you know, yeah, we're a product of our environment. Absolutely. If you were 21 years old, right, like 49 years ago, approximately, what, what advice would you give your 21 year old self? Like, do you have some things that you would change? Like some things you look back on, like, hmm, I would have done that differently or any advice you would give your 21 year old self? Well, I have to tell you, I did a podcast the other day and it was about alcohol and drug dependency. And one of the things that I would tell a 21 year old is that your life will be just so much better than you can ever imagine it's going to be. If you do the right things, you can't imagine how great your life is going to be if you do a few simple things. And that includes putting a little bit of money aside every month when you're working. And you don't have to keep the same job. Go to school at night if you can. I went to school at night for six years to get a two-year stinking AA degree, which I've never used. But I learned a lot of things. Uh, read. Learn. And I don't know if you saw it on my website. I have it on there all the time. It's be nice to each other. Mm. That's Kindness. important. Right. I went to work and I went to bed when I came home knowing that I had fulfilled my obligations to my customers. I didn't have to hide from the telephone like a lot of guys do. I worked for contractors that were here and gone in two years because they were shysters and, and crooks. Charge a, decent, uh, charge a decent price for your services. Treat people fairly. You can't help but be a success. It's a simple, simple equation. For sure. Uh, so I have another travel question, actually. Have you been to Brazil or Venezuela? Yes. I have not have been you, to Venezuela. I would like to because it's it's really interesting right now. I think that's what I'm that's what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> I might have really to bring my own food with me though. Yeah. Uh, how did you go into the favelas by chance in Brazil? Uh, no, we do we do uh, organized tours. Okay. And I've been to Brazil twice. I went for Carnival for my oh uh, nice my, uh, uh, 25th anniversary. I believe it might have been later than that, and that was wonderful. Uh, and because I speak Spanish. And I was surrounded by people from all over uh, Latin America. I got to talk to a lot of people and uh, that was wonderful. We stayed at the beach, you know, we stayed at the Copacabana Hotel, which is a very famous expensive hotel at Ipanema. And uh, we took some tours. We had a wonderful time. We went up the Amazon. Let me tell you, when I went, it was during the Y2K problem. There were two people on our trip to Peru and when we went down the Amazon, uh, when we went to Brazil, there were eight, eight, there were 10 people on the entire ship, a giant cruise ship, <laughs> 10 people, because everyone was afraid that the computers were going to break down during Y2K. We had a couple from France. We had a couple from Spain. We had a couple from England. We had a couple from America. And the Italian spoke Spanish. The girl from France spoke, spoke a little Spanish. We were able to all communicate at the table and translate and have a great time. And uh, it was wonderful, wonderful. I have a book written called Dreams of Costa Rica, which is a fictionalized version of my uncle's life in Costa Rica. He went to live there and never came back in about 1938. And he was there during the revolution in Costa Rica. They had a short revolution of like 38 days or something. And uh, so I write a really interesting story about that. It's a uh, he meets the richest man in Costa Rica who wants him to do him some favors. Uh, mm. And uh, we'll leave it at that. It's, it's a fun book. It's well worth reading. It's how do you, you say you, you write just cold, right? You don't outline, right? That's and right. for me as a writer, I, 
have tried it. It works sometimes, but for me, outlines are super helpful at times. So how do you just cold write? Well, I create an outline after I create the characters and start the story. So I can so keep you have an outline. I keep it, I, I don't use the outline to build the story. The story builds itself. Uh, someone talks to me in my head, I guess, and I, I get this information. Mm. It's hard, you know, it's hard to explain how that process works. No, I get you. It's do you write to music at all? Like I'm, like soundtracks. Do you ever like write to music? No, I have to have silence. I can't sleep with music. Really? I have silence. But Interesting. I, I create uh, outlines to dictate and to, to show where the story's moving and who's related to who, because my stories are very much character driven with action. They're not action stories because the stuff happening inside the people's brains is much more interesting than what's happening uh, in the outside world. Uh, the relationships between people, uh, people under stress, those relationships, how they develop, how they fracture, those things are what's interesting for me. And there's war, there's uh, danger, those things are there as elements also, but that's a backdrop to the human experience and how they react to those each other and those events. I have a spy thriller that I wrote called Grandpa Ernie's Secrets, takes place in Italy. It's a, I'm a quirky person, so I write quirky stories. Uh, you know, we're all individuals. We all have a different way of telling a story. I, I, I don't know if you noticed, did you see that I won the greatest storyteller event in Long Beach? Wow, yeah, I, I saw that. Know. That's awesome. Yeah, that, is so awesome. I, that says something. So I did that. I did a second one a couple of nights ago and I didn't win, but boy, there were some great storytellers. And listening to other people tell stories and, uh, and listening to interesting things on television. I wrote a story. I was in Iceland on a cruise ship and I saw a story about the Fabergé eggs. So that little bit of information gave me an idea to write a story about a millionaire who builds his house in California to ship his best artwork to to keep it safe from the elements of bad weather on the East Coast. And the story takes place before and after California becomes a state. But the characters involved are the really the important stories. It involves a house that may or may not be haunted. It involves true characters from the West doing things that maybe they didn't do. And, but it's all brought by little bits of information that comes your way and then it triggers something in your brain. Mm. Other than your own novels, what are, do you have some favorite novels that from other authors that you really, really like? Well, I've been, yes, I, I like uh, uh, Ends of the Earth, uh, uh, stories about the Middle Ages. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a, a book right now, which is uh, crazy about a true crime uh, story where an innocent man gets convicted of a crime. I'm reading a book about the Jesuits right now, which is very interesting. The Jesuits are highly motivated by socialism. They've actually fought uh, with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. They believe in giving all the wealth to the masses. And of course we know how that all turns out. Uh, as you take the money away from the masses, there's no money left because there are certain people on this planet who if you, gave, uh, if you gave everybody a million dollars in a year or two, one person would have a hundred million dollars and everybody else would be broke because they don't have the knowledge or the skills to handle money. Why do you think you've had the most prop, most people on this planet are poor for the history of the planet? Why is that? It's no accident. It's the way people are. We don't plan long-term. We don't have that. Human skill. nature. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. It's human nature. We want instant gratification, right? We want it now. That's right. And, um, yeah. That's right. And you can't blame the first world for the problems of the entire world. 
The first world has escaped those problems through education. And that is the most important thing you can do. That's why my wife and I support eight children around the world in school so that they can be educated. And I say, bring all the immigrants to America. Let's educate them. Then hopefully some of them will go back to where they came from and improve their countries. That's what we need to have happen. Money handed out to foreign countries does no good. It yeah. always goes to the government and gets wasted on mansions and beautiful cars and beautiful women. But if you educate these people and they can go back to their countries or send money back to their countries to help their countries, that's a great thing. Yeah, it's like the saying goes, right? You can give somebody, um, you, you can give somebody a fish, right? Or you can teach them how to fish. That's right. And, and, yeah. and we've been giving people fish for a long time and the world's just as messed up as it was 100 years ago. Absolutely. You know We're giving away billions and trillions of dollars right this year alone, right? That's it's, right. it's, it's really, it's really bad. It's, and you guys, gonna, you guys are going to pay for it. You're going to be paying $6 a gallon for gas. Yeah. And I am right now. I don't care. I can afford it. But this is the sad thing. The people who want to change the world, who are young, like you guys are the victims of when the world changes badly. The cultural revolution would be an example yeah. of that. Uh, the revolution in Cuba is another example of that. So remember that when you go out into the streets and want to, beat up people and knock people down and burn up their businesses those are places you could have got a job yeah it doesn't make sense it, it's it's we live in a crazy world and it's just going to continue to be crazy just because of the way information is absolutely and i yeah. think that it it becomes harder and harder i i'm not a technical person it becomes harder and harder for those people my age to keep up with that information i try uh, but it's impossible. And you'll find that as time passes, you'll be left behind also because the, the curve on information is, is so steep that even you guys won't be able to keep up with it. It'll be the five-year-olds. They'll be way ahead of you. When you're 30, the five-year-olds will be wearing chips in their wrists and yeah. all kinds of crazy stuff. Craziness. So our goal is to work hard. And so eventually we're able to, you know, live and, and abide by that sustenance so we can actually like survive in California because California is beautiful, right? Absolutely. So our goal is to work hard now. We're 2021. 20, we're all graduated and, you know, we're busting ass. And so we're going to continue doing that so we don't have to fall behind, right? That's right. I can't yeah. remember. Uh, oh, it's, it's the no debt guy on the radio. He says, work hard and save your money now so you can help people later. Yeah, Definitely. RC, you've been very insightful and I'm sure our, our viewers like I loved your, your insight here. So thank you for that. Um, you know, just to let you know, we were actually talking about this last month. We're planning on doing one trip a month. So three, four days, we're all fortunate enough to have remote jobs. And so we're planning on doing either, you know, place within the States or going to Costa Rica because four hours away, you know, just going to check stuff out because, you know, we're young and, and I mean, ideally we want to travel throughout life, but why not now? You know, Absolutely. we can save a buck and then we can always travel. That's right. And you do it now. Yeah. You'll learn valuable lessons that will help you for moving forward. Very I'm, true. Off, That's to, a good I'm off to Portugal in September. I haven't been there before. I'm off to Iran uh, in 2023, probably. Uh, as you see behind me, uh, I have lots of masks from Africa and different countries. That's This is what yeah. we collect in our travels. And uh, yeah, take every opportunity you can to travel and to learn. It will make you a, a much uh, smarter and wiser person, even if other people won't listen to you. Very fair. Well, thank you for that, RC. Really appreciate it. If you want to plug any of your books or your website, please do now. Uh, come to CowboyProductions52.com. The first chapters of all my books are there. I have true stories of my upbringing. 
and adventures as a youngster. And I have a little bit of commentary, not very much, because who cares about what I think? But uh, I have a lot of travel stories and photographs. So if you can't go someplace, come on my website, look at the pictures and uh, enjoy it. I, I, I just want people to enjoy travel. And, and my main crux is to stimulate people to travel and learn some things that, from other cultures. And do uh, send me a link so I can put this up on my website. Absolutely. And uh, I wish you luck in your endeavors. Much appreciated.